Welcome to recordings from We the People, Race in America, the Calvin Center for Faith and Writing's 2016 Fall Writer Series. In this series of five events, people from diverse backgrounds, working in different genres, read or performed their work and then discussed it with attentive audiences. What follows is the first event in that series, public theologian Jim Wallace talking about his most recent New York Times bestselling book, America's Original Sin, Racism, White Privilege, and the Bridge to a New America. It was recorded in the Covenant Fine Arts Center Auditorium on the campus of Calvin College on September 12, 2016. You can go to our website for an extended version of this talk that also includes responses from community members and questions from the audience. Thank you very much. It's great to be back at Calvin College. I haven't been here for a long, long time. But when I went and passed the, the big yard today, the student, all the students on the grass, it uh, reminded me of the last campus I was at, which was taking my older son, Luke, to college two weeks ago. And I'm still kind of dealing with that, you know, as they say. And so I've been thinking about Luke a lot, and. Uh, and I thought about a story about him that I thought I would start with tonight. So my wife, Joy Carroll, who was with me in Detroit until this morning, was one of the first women ordained in the Church of England many years ago. And um, she, we were at a big music festival in the UK. Uh, it's arts and justice. And so I got now my son, Luke, on my lap and he's sitting there watching his mother up on stage, and she's doing the Eucharist for 25,000 British young people. And he looks at her, and she's telling them things, and they're listening, and she says, the Lord be with you, and they say back, and also with you, and she, they do whatever she tells them to do. And my little boy, four years old, looks up at me and says, Dad? Can men do that too? <laughs> so, for our son Luke and then Jack, women providing leadership in the church was changing the narrative. So we'll start with, with that changing the narrative, or as my boys would say, let's get the story right. So I want you to think for a minute, imagine everything you've heard in this presidential election year about racial resentment, racial bigotry, stoking of racial fears, Think of all those words, all those conversations, all that conflict. Put all those words in your ears just for a moment. Remember them. In the midst of all that, Genesis 1.26 says, Keep the words in your head. Then God said, then God said, 
Let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion, the better word there is stewardship, over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the wild animals of the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, the word there, imago Dei. He created them. But at the founding of our nation, it was the Christians, British, American. Now, I'm a Christian, but Christians have got to tell the truth about what Christians have done in the past that's wrong. So the Christians said, we can't do to indigenous people what we are doing, stealing their land and their lives, and we can't do to kidnap Africans we want to do to build the biggest economic resource to start this nation. We can't do those things to human beings made in the image of God. Can't do that. So to do those things to those people, we've got to say somehow that they are less than human. We have to dehumanize them. And the original sin of America is not the slavery. Oh, we white folks, we like it to be slavery because, you know, my, my grandparents never had slaves. My people came later and this has nothing to do with me. It's over now, right? No, there were other slaveries before ours. Greeks were slaves to the Romans. But the Greek slaves taught the Roman elite children. Taught them. No one said they were less than human. No one destroyed their families. But to do what we were going to do, we had to throw away Imago Dei. Throw away the image of God. So the Black Lives Matter movement isn't just an exciting young movement of activists. I was with them in Detroit yesterday, the Black Youth Project there. It is that. But it's really striking at the heart of the bad theology at the founding of this nation. Now, I know at Calvin, you guys care about theology. So we're going to start with theology. America's original sin was overturning Genesis chapter 1, contradicting the purpose of God. He said, let us make them in our image so they can have dominion or stewardship over all the creation. But one people said, no, we're going to have dominion over other people. That contradicts Genesis 1, the story from the beginning 
we contradicted it. So our founding principle as a nation, uh, listen to this, our founding principle as a nation was indigenous lives and black lives don't matter. That's where the nation began. Now, Brian Stevenson, who's premier mass incarceration lawyer in the country, Brian says slavery never ended, it just evolved. Mass incarceration now is, is the newest evolution. So we've been having these town meetings, we turned a book tour into a town meeting tour, had one in Detroit yesterday, uh, lots of people from Detroit came all over the city. They have been very multiracial, multicultural, very gender inclusive, and very intergenerational, which is the best part. A lot of young people coming. And when you get the right people in the room and have a serious, honest conversation, things happen like some good white person says, what do you mean, white privilege? And a young Af African-American kid says, well, if you don't see it, you got it. <laughs> you get the right people in the room for the conversation. So I've been having all these conversations, and to be honest, uh, I walk out of the room feeling really hopeful about the honesty that we've had, about the hunger for change, about how a new generation wants their lives to make a difference in the world. And then I go home and turn on the news in the hotel room. It's a whole different conversation. It's alarming. It's dangerous. It's scary. It's and, and there are two conversations. One is happening at the grassroots that wants to change these things. And the other is really, um, well, as, as an old guy told me in North Carolina, dying donkeys kick the hardest. And so now we have a whole conversation where what is often explicit in elections, implicit, is now explicit. What was overt, covert, is now overt. What dog whistles of code language have become bullhorns and people are afraid for their kids. And let me be, just right from the start, say probably the line in the book that draws the most conversation that needs to be unpacked every time is, all I said was, if white Christians acted more Christian than white, black parents would be less fearful for their children. That's all. So I've been a Little League baseball coach for a long time, 11 years, 22 seasons, and every black player I ever had coached, every black player has had their mom or dad have the talk. Head shaken, you know what I mean by the talk how to behave in the presence of a police officer with a gun. Every black player, I don't care if they're low income or sons of the top DC lawyers, doesn't matter. They're African American, they have the talk. 
Not one white player I've ever had has ever had that talk with their parents, and hardly any white parents even know it's going on to have that talk. I decided to write this book when Trayvon Martin actually was killed in Sanford, Florida, because I knew if America was honest, they would, they would admit that if my son, who is now playing college baseball, big, strong, six-foot kid, if he'd been in Sanford, Florida, same time, same night, doing the same things Trayvon was doing, everyone knows he would have come back to me in joy. But Trayvon didn't come back to his parents and isn't going to college this fall. And then we took um, Jack, our 13-year-old, to England for Christmas this year, and, and, uh, and he, he was a big 12-year-old, five foot seven and a half, he'd tell you. <laughs> and everybody saw him, and they said, Jack, you're so big and strong and athletic and good-looking. No one said, Jack, you're scary. You're threatening. No one said that. While we were in the UK, the news came across the, the big pond that, that the police officer who shot young 12-year-old Tammy Rice in Cleveland would not go to trial. And I read to Jack on a British couch the words of the prosecutor who said, yeah, but he was, he was a big 12-year-old. He was five foot seven and a half. Now, I know that park in Cleveland, and I know my son, Jack Wallace, wouldn't have been shot after a police officer drove up after two seconds. I was on WDET on Thursday in Detroit, uh, and uh, Stephen Henderson is the host of the show. It's a great show. He does the op-ed page for the Free Press. And uh, we had a good conversation about all this, and. Sure enough, white privilege came up in the questions, and this guy called in and said, well, uh, let's just all get along, and if we all just pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps, we'd be cool, right? So I said, so I'm here, and this may shock you, but I was there in Detroit for my 50th high school reunion. <laughs> and I'm helping all these old people up the stairs. <laughs> I thought, who are these people? Oh my goodness. But I went and I traced back to some of the places I live. One is Redford Township, went back to the house. So here's the bootstraps in Redford Township. Every house in our neighborhood, every single house, was a three-bedroom ranch house uh, led by a World War II vet like my dad, a Navy veteran, came home. They all got a GI Bill, that's free education. An FHA loan, that's a free loan. And my government made my white family middle class. When you have an education and a, and a house, you're middle class. Black GIs didn't get the same thing. My white dad got that, but the black GIs didn't. Jim Crow prevented that, and, and that didn't happen. 
in Redford Township. Baby boomer, that's structural white privilege. It's personal, it's structural, and most of us as white people, I was on the metro in Detroit, the air airport, and I'm on this uh, moving sidewalk, you know, I mean moving, what do they call it, M moving stairway, right? And I said, this is like white privilege. You're just standing here. <laughs> but you're moving. Looking at all the people around you and thinking about their troubles and you're just standing there. But you're moving. But you're moving. So what I want to say being theological is that the whole idea of whiteness is something we created. It's a social construct to justify what we do with slavery. It's a lie. When I would do anti-racism training for white people, or as Ta-Nehisi Coates says, well, those people who think they're white, think about that one. I would try to get them to identify with their European ancestries. I could never do it, so I'd make jokes. I'd say, you know, you Italians, you just remind me of you Germans. You're just exactly alike. And they'd laugh and laugh. Or you Swedes, you know, you're, you're just like the Irish. They'd laugh. I said, you must be like each other, because when you got to America, you all became white people. <laughs> the idea of promising racial difference and betterment, original sin. Promise built into all of our structures, everything that we're doing, policing, criminal justice. So please don't any, in the question time, one question I don't want you to ask. I'm not a racist, am I? Please. Flint, Michigan, taught us that racism is in the air we breathe and the water we drink. It's the toxicity of a culture. No, 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 not every white person in this room. There's a lot of white people here. <laughs> not every white person in this room is responsible for everything bad that was ever done to a person of color. But here's the principle. If you benefit from oppression, you are responsible for changing it. If you benefit, you are responsible for changing it. Now, whiteness is this crazy idea. It's an ideology, it's a myth, it's a lie. But it's also, I want to suggest, an idol an idol. So white Christianity is an idolatry. So I'm on Morning Joe with Joe Scarborough and Eddie Glaude, who does African American Studies at Princeton. We were on together, and Eddie Glaude says to Joe Scarborough, you know, I, what I love about Jim's book, he talks about the idolatry of white Christianity. Joe says, I better read that book. I sure don't get that. And he doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> but what do idols do in the Bible? Idols separate people from God. 
So I want to suggest, I'm just getting theological here. I want to, get, I want to suggest that the whole idea of whiteness, that we, uh, when whiteness, there's a, a good documentary I saw at my kid's school uh, last week, a workshop with kids from New York High School for a year. And, and, and whiteness, the kids of color would say, it's like the norm, it's like, it's like normal, it's like everything's judged by that. And that's what we all feel, that's the, when, when that's going on, uh, uh, it's like people are living a lie and they don't even know it. So I talk to young people all the time who just want to stop living the lie, you know? Now, we're going to stay theological for a minute. Go from Genesis, let's go to Galatians. Chapter 3, you've heard these words. You're all clothed in Christ. This is a Christian crowd I've heard. You've all clothed in Christ. And, and there is no longer Jew or Gentile, bond or free, male or female. We're all one in Christ Jesus. You've heard that? Here's what you probably didn't know. I didn't know. That Galatians 3.28 text was a baptismal formula, a baptismal liturgy in the early church, meaning every new convert who came to be baptized heard them reading that text. Now think about this. What they're saying is these are the, always the divisive factors among human beings, race, class, gender. These are the Galatians factors. Always these issues. So what we're saying here is we're a new community that follows after Jesus Christ, and we're called the body of Christ. And what we're doing here is we are working every day to overcome those barriers. That's what we do. That's who we are. So if you don't want to do that, you better go somewhere else. Because that's what we do here in this thing called the body of Christ. So at Antioch, they were called Christians for the first time, and Antioch was known for all these ethnicities who were brought together, and they became one body. Now, here's the most political, most important political fact in America. One fact, underneath everything else. By 2030 or 40, we are no longer a white majority nation. We're a majority of minorities, and for the first time since Europeans discovered America by conquering indigenous people, first time since then, we've not been a white majority nation. That's underneath all of our politics. Certainly underneath this presidential election, underneath immigration, underneath our educational system, underneath our economy, it's underneath everything because a whole lot of us white folks are not ready to navigate that 
place to what I call the bridge to a new America. I want to tell you, the old white folks that I just had a reunion with <laughs> from Southfield, we were all white. Southfield's a black school now. We went to school, got a tour, and I'll tell you, those my old classmates, they're not ready for this. There's a thing I call white fragility. <laughs> Pretty deep. I want to know if a new generation is ready for this or not. And who's going to navigate? Now, I don't know the answer to this question, but somebody has to navigate the path, the bridge to a new America. Somebody's got to navigate that. Somebody's got to help create the space. Now, I don't know if we're going to do it. I really don't know. But I would say that the space, the social space, the social sector, the, the place that could most help navigate this country to a new demographic, that social space, more than any other space, could be churches. The faith community. But we don't clap yet because we haven't done it. But for social space, we could do that. Are we going to is the question. There's a new guy, William Barber, who runs the Moral Mondays movement in North Carolina, a dear friend of mine. Uh, I, I love his phrase, oh, I'd like you to meet Master James Crow Esquire. Master James Crow Esquire isn't like the old Jim Crow. This guy's not wearing sheets and a hood and lynching sites. This guy is in legislatures, including Michigan. He's in back rooms of companies. And he knows, Master James Crow Esquire, that he can't prevent that changing demographic in America. He knows he can't change that. That's happening now. He can't stop it. What he can do is block it obstruct it, try and veto that new demographic from changing this country. And he's doing it strategically. He's got, he's got five, five points to his plan. One's called racial gerrymandering. Racializing congressional districts, that's how they defeated immigration reform. A year and a half, we had a majority of Democrats, independents, Republicans, evangelicals, and get ready, white evangelicals, in favor of fixing our broken immigration system. And I had a meeting with the Republican leadership in the House of Representatives, with six faith leaders, th three Catholic bishops, and three of us evangelical leaders. And they promised us they'd bring this up for a vote. It passed the Senate, and we knew they knew it passed the House. But Speaker Boehner, when those gerrymandered districts that had no minorities in them at all said, don't let this come up for a vote, he caved in to them and broke his promise to the faith community. 
Second, you make immigration reform now not about an earned path to citizenship, but just maybe, maybe, maybe legalizing a few workers, maybe. Well, that's 11 million brown votes you don't have to deal with now. Third, Michelle Alexander, New Jim Crow, read it. How mass incarceration we knew was racially disparate, white drug use, black drug use, exactly the same, but incarceration overwhelmingly black and brown, not white. Well, we knew that. We didn't know that was going to be purposely linked to massive voter disenfranchisement of black and brown prisoners when they come out of jail for nonviolent drug offenses that are now felonies. She taught us that. Massive numbers of people. Fifth, fourth, voter regulations. You might have heard, I hope you saw, that this North Carolina new voter regulations, since they gutted the Supreme Court Voting Rights Act, they gutted that in Shelby. And so now there's new regulations. And a court now has said, we're, we're overturning that, shutting down that, because those regulations, the language of the court, not sojourners, but the court said this was targeted surgically against black voters. Voter regs in 15 states designed to disenfranchise black voters. I call this the Matthew 25 voter suppression project. Because <laughs> my conversion passage was Matthew 25, where Jesus says, I was hungry, I was thirsty, I was naked, I was sick, I was a stranger, I was in prison, and you weren't there for me. Lord, when do we see you? As you've done to the least of these, you've done to me. All these voter regs are aimed at the most poorest, vulnerable people in the country. Let's call it the Matthew 25 Voter Suppression Project. So we're going to call for clergy with collars and congregations to be at polling places all over the country with the lawyers protecting vulnerable voters in this election. In this election. So I want us, and I want to see you all, because you're the generation to decide whether the churches are going to be leadership spaces or not. Uh, whether we're going to do this, because this is, this is finally, again, I'm going to get theological. This is about not just politics or an election. This is about our baptism. Do we believe that we are baptized into a new community where all are made in the image of God? Are we brothers and sisters in Christ? Or finally, are we just term determined by our cultural identity? I am an evangelical. And my wife and my friends just say, why do you keep calling yourself that? <laughs> but I want to ask, are white evangelicals going to be more white or evangelical? What's our identity as Christians? That's, and I want to tell you, black, Hispanic, Asian American, Native American Christians are watching white Christians to see what they're going to do. Not just this fall, but I'm talking about this future of this country. 
we need to build that bridge to a new America. And I, after all these town meetings, I'm actually pretty hopeful that it can happen. But this is the choice we have to make. So my son, Jack, who's now 13, I remember when he was in the fifth grade at John Eden Elementary School, uh, they were studying immigration. And they invite dads and moms in who are dealing with, um, with uh, the issue they're talking about in class. So I got invited. And so I had Jack's class in front of me, public school class in Washington, DC. And I said, you know, there are 11 million undocumented people in this country. Uh, and, 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 and they're undocumented immigrants. They can't get health care. They can't get police protection. And with 1,000 deportations every day, they're having their families broken up. And, and the class says, oh, we got to fix that. That's wrong. Congress should fix that. Have you talked to them? <laughs> I said, yeah, we've talked to them. What do they say? They say their constituencies are afraid. And they said, afraid of what? And then it hit me. I look at this public school class, and, they're, and I coach most of these kids in Little League Baseball. They're African-American. They're Latino. They're Asian-American. They're Native American. They're white. They're Somali. They're, they're, they're everything. And I said, they're afraid of you. They're afraid of us. Why are they afraid of us? Because you look like the America we're becoming. You look like the new America, and they're afraid of that. And they said, why are they afraid of that? I said, because they don't think it's going to work. Tell me, how's it working? They said, it's working great. It's really cool. I said, well, we've got to teach the country. It's really cool. But at a town meeting like this, somebody said, maybe they're afraid it might work. And that's why they're against it. So this is what we have to say. This is a, these are some choices now fundamental choices about baptism and about democracy. Baptism and democracy. Are we going to be those who, who, who decide who we are is what that Galatians text says we're supposed to be. It's not admirable to be a multicultural church. It's expected. It's essential. So, and then, do those people get involved in making sure there's voter protection? Or a criminal justice system where justice is put back into the criminal justice system? Or I tell my, I, I did a column last week about how I want white parents now and white grandparents to have the talk with their kids, their white kids, and tell their kids that their black classmates and teammates are having this other talk with their parents. I want them to know they're having the talk, and I want them to know their black classmates and teammates are being targeted, racially profiled by police. Undoubted data true. I want the white kids to know that. So, and they say, it'll make them uncomfortable. It'll make them mad. Yeah, 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 it will. That's the point. <laughs> so I'm being interviewed by a reporter in my home office about the book and white privilege. 
what do you mean white privilege? Well, Luke just walked in the door with Cameron, his teammate from the baseball team, and doing homework. I said, they're doing homework, they're gonna go to practice in a few minutes, and they're gonna walk out the door, and Luke and Cameron, who's African-American, they both know that Cameron is not as safe as Luke. Any door in Washington, D.C., they know, and you know what? It pisses both of them off. Because if you have athletes for kids, you learn that their best friends are their teammates. Always. So who's crossing our thresholds? Who do our kids have playdates with or not? Who's sleeping over? Who do you go to when you're in trouble? Who do you go to when you want to talk about your hopes and fears for your kids? 72% of white Christians this past year, 72% said in a poll, the shootings of young African-Americans are isolated incidents. That's what they said. 82% of black Christians said they're part of a pattern and part of our lives. Are the white Christians saying the black Christians are lying or exaggerating? No, here's the problem. 75% of white people in America have not one significant relationship of color in their social circle, not one. Our racial geography separates us, so we don't know about our hopes and fears for our kids. Racial geography, including the racial geography of, of education, We've got people in this room who could tell you about the racial geography of education in Grand Rapids. Racial geography is not an accident. It's policy. It's designed that way to keep us apart and keep us from hearing each other's stories. I'll close with a story that came up yesterday in Detroit, my hometown. Um, how all this began for me was, was in my hometown of Detroit. So I'm now a teenager, kind of getting up to where some of you are in age, and I'm listening to my city. I'm reading the papers, I'm hearing the news, I'm having conversations. And something seemed really big and really wrong in my city, in my country. And nobody, in my white church, my white school, my white world, would talk about it. Nobody would talk about it. You're too young to ask those questions. When you're older, you'll understand. Or we don't know why it's that way either, but it's always been that way. Only, only honest answer I got was, if you keep asking those questions, son, you're gonna get in lots of trouble. That proved to be true. <laughs> so I went into the city and I took jobs alongside young guys like me who were born in Detroit, like me, but they're black and I was white. So I went to Detroit Edison, and I went there again this weekend, and I drove that drive I always did back and forth every day when I got my driver's license, and I got that job, and I was a janitor at Detroit Edison because I was making money for college. And I met this young kid named Butch, 
and uh, he was making money to support his family. But we were both, both young guys moving the furniture around, like to see how much we could carry. This is how old I am. We had elevator operators, <laughs> real people, uh, who when they were sick or on vacation, Butch and I would be put in the elevators. Now when you're an elevator operator, the law gives you a break in the morning and the afternoon because your head would start to spin all the time. So on my breaks, I go in his elevator, ride him down with him, talk, talk, talk. His break comes into mine, talk, talk, talk all day. He takes me home to meet his family, his mother and his siblings, his father had passed. She told me about her, the men in her family and their experience with the police in Detroit. Grandfather, father, husband who passed, and now Butch. And she said this, she said, so I tell my kids, if you're lost and can't find your way home, and you see a policeman, duck under a stairwell, hide behind a building, wait till he passes, and then find your way home. When she said that, my mother's words echoed in my head to her five kids. I remember this as vividly standing here as I did that night 50 years ago. If you're lost, my mother said, can't find your way home, look for a policeman. The policeman is your friend. He'll take you by the hand and he'll bring you home. I've learned most about the world by being in places I was never supposed to be and knowing people I was never supposed to know. That's what changes us and that's what takes us out of these bubbles that other people create to make themselves wealthy and powerful and keep us just going along, just going along. So when I look forward to whatever happens in this election, we, we got these things to deal with right afterwards, no matter what. And uh, I, just, I just really think there's a new generation that wants to build a bridge to a new America, and I, and I felt that when I got to climb up the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama on the big anniversary, 50th anniversary, and the president is there, and the first lady, and the kids, and all these foot soldiers who marched 50 years ago got beaten bloody almost to death. John Lewis, member of Congress now, was almost killed on that bridge. And they walked across that bridge against the sheriff, Jim Clark, the sheriff, and all his thugs to get voting rights. We walked top of the bridge, and John Lewis, he's a hero of mine, now member of Congress, tears in our eyes, giving each other a big hug, and I said, what's our bridge now for my kids? You walked across the bridge for voting rights. What's our bridge now? I think our bridge is building, building to this whole new demographic of what America's becoming. And so my final text, because you're a theological group, is the end of the story in Revelation. After this I looked and there was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, crying out with a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. They worship and they will no longer hunger, they thirst no more, the sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat. 
and God will wipe, wipe away every tear from their eyes. At the end of time, there's never going to be and shouldn't be a post-racial society. That's no goal. Here we are. The end, end of the story was in their languages and peoples and tribes in all our rich diversity. We're finally all together. Worshiping God. All together. All together. That's the end of the story. So the question is, are we going to be the ones who act on what we say we believe, decide to become who we're supposed to be, be willing to speak the truth to power multiracially in this country, and then to decide that finally, in the end, all lives don't matter until Black Lives Matter. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Thank you also to our many sponsors, African and African Diaspora Studies at Calvin College, Ambrose at WIMCAT, the Asian Studies Program at Calvin College, Brazos Press, the Calvin Center for Community Engagement and Global Learning, the Calvin College Campus Store, the Calvin College Associate Dean for Diversity and Inclusion, the Calvin College History Department, the Calvin College Office of the Provost, the Calvin College Department of Sociology and Social Work Heinz Fund, the Calvin College Student Life Division, the Calvin Theater Company, the Christian Reform Church's Office of Social Justice, Event and Tech Services at Calvin College, the Paul B. Henry Institute at Calvin College, and Schuler Books and Music. You can find more recordings from the 2016 Fall Writer Series and learn more about the work of the Calvin Center for Faith and Writing at our website, ccfw.calvin.edu.